This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 45th edition of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Today I have a special guest, Coach Randy Brown. Randy's an author, former college basketball coach, and now a prominent basketball coaching consultant and national speaker. Uh, Randy is the author of the powerful book, Rebound Forward, Rebound from Life's Most Devastating Losses and Stay in the Game. I read this book this week. It's an incredible true story about the adversities and tragedies and successes that Randy has had in his life. The book discusses Randy's successful basketball career and some major adversities that he has faced, including losing two children, his addiction and time in a federal prison, divorce, some job, and some job challenges and other challenges. Randy, I'll get back to you in a minute. I want to get, get a couple, a few housekeeping things in here. Before we go further, I want to recognize our engineer today, Daniel Billis. Daniel is also the host of Fresh Juice at Rainier Avenue Radio. I want to mention we have a lot of good things going on at the Rainier Avenue Radio Sports Department. We're on the World Wide Web based in Seattle. Our sports department has Rick Dupree's great show, One on One with Dupe, Granville Emerson, Ronald Laurent, Pepe, our co-host of a fun show, Lidline Sports, Masvita Marari is the host of Seattle Sports Weekly, Pat McCarthy, Masvita, co-host of a show on the Seattle Metro Sports Conference, Mark Bryant has a fitness show, and Juan Cotto and Mike Colbrizi are hosting a new sports show. So my guest today, Randy, I'm going to give you a little more of an introduction. I'm going to start firing off questions. Uh, Randy Brown had a 20-year career as a college basketball coach. He was an assistant at multiple universities. Randy was a head coach for, I believe, two years at Stetson University in the 1990s. About 12 NBA players, I believe, have benefited from Randy's college coaching, including Steve Kerr, the coach of the Warriors. Uh, Randy currently runs elite coach mentoring. Uh, all sorts of coaches at Division One. Division two level, junior college level, have benefited from Randy's uh, teaching and training, as well as about six NBA coaches. Um, Randy's life goes way beyond basketball. Uh, I want you to everybody take a look at Randy's website, randybrown.coach. And you can also get more information on his book on his website. And you can follow Randy on Twitter at CoachRB. Uh, Randy, we're going to have a good conversation about your life and career. We'll hit on some other basketball topics. But thank you for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. I uh, appreciate the, uh, the kind of neat introduction there, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. Likewise, Randy. You know, I read about you online. I read your book this week, and uh, you're, you're just, it's just great to have you on. I think you'll have a lot of stuff to contribute uh, to our listeners. Randy, I ask this question frequently to guests. It's just a general background question, but I always get interesting answers. Basketball has always been a big, has obviously been a big part of your life. How did you get the basketball bug as a young kid growing up? Well, it probably started, you know, with a coffee can um, nailed to the wall downstairs in the basement. But a uh-huh. real pivotal moment for me was uh, the, the basketball coach in my hometown, Fort Dodge, Iowa, was a coach by the name of Dutch Usman. And, and we were, we were, my dad was the sports writer, and so we just naturally just, we were like one big family with the Usman family. And I remember being at practice when I was probably in like second grade and I was at, at Dutch's practice and his voice, his demeanor, and he just looked eight foot tall to me. <laughs> and he had command of those players and I, I mean I I can clearly remember just looking at him thinking, he must be a really um special person. And he obviously is in Sarek and he's the coach. And that word from that moment on it really meant something to me. And uh, never forget that. And being the son of a sports writer, I mean, I, we were always the last one out of the gym, and I wasn't even playing. 
I just a kid, and I just fell in love with it. You know, and it was uh, it was something that was readily available to me. I loved. It. Well, develop love for the game as a young kid, and I, and I read in your book your late father uh, was a sports writer, so sports and basketball seem to have been a big seem to be a big part of your life. So, Randy, I read your book, and you know a lot of college assistant coaches and coaches in general move around a lot, and you certainly moved around a lot as an assistant. You're at a lot of different colleges and universities. If you had to pick one school where you were an assistant basketball coach. At which one had the the biggest impact you think on your career? I know you were like at seven or eight different schools, but if you had to pick one, which one would it be? Well, without a doubt, it would have to be the University of Arizona. And just a, a real brief backstory, you know, I grew up in Lou Olson was the head basketball coach at the University of Iowa, and he took his team to the nineteen eighty Final Four, and it was just amazing. Well, I happened to be in school at the time at the University of Iowa. Um, I, I had the distinction of being in school in Iowa and with the senior rooms ball in a Final Four uh, with our teams while I was in school. And I tried to beat that one. So it was a heyday of sports. Hayden Fry was, was really in his tenure, and then Lou also was doing like the best win games and, and uh, create, you know, just fabulous programs. And so... Uh, Coach Olson was bigger life to me, and, and he left and went to Arizona in 83. And I knew at that time I wanted to be a college coach, and I did my darndest to stay in touch with Coach Olson and his assistant coaches who went from Iowa City down to Tucson in 83. And lo and behold, I got a, I got a call in 1985, and um, I was asked to come as a, as, like me as a graduate assistant on the University of Wildcat basketball program. And, man, I'm telling you, I tell people for a year – I was working for uh, an idol, and then finally I had to say, you know, he's just, I'm working for Lute Olsen. I'm not working for my idol anymore, but it was that dream-like for me. So without a question, and you can add Kerr and Sean Elliott, National Player of the Year in 88, I jumped right into a couple NCAA tournaments. We won the Pac-10 on the Pauley Pavilion floor in front of John Wooden when Reggie Miller played. It's just all and on and on. So that, that was terrific, but they were all great in their own way, too. Great, great background. And, you know, Lute Olson is such a legendary coach. You know, growing up in Seattle, being a University of Washington guy, I used to watch U of A play sure. at, uh, in Seattle. R- real legend. Are you in touch with, with uh, Mr. Olson all uh, as years have gone on? Just a, yeah, a, a little bit. You know, I, I shared my book with Coach, and, uh, you know, he, he had a health setback here uh, fairly recently. And, I'm sorry. Um, I, I'll tell you, the, the, the group of – players and coaches who were with him for so many years are just tight as can be. And uh, so either either talking to him uh, in 24, just talking to one of the other coaches who's been in touch with him, we all stay in touch with Coach Allen, yeah. Neat, neat, real legend. This is Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with former coach Randy Brown, author of Rebound Forward. Go to, go to randybrown.coach to learn more about his great book. You can follow Randy on Twitter at CoachRB. In the 1990s, uh, Randy, you got met one of your dreams, and you became a Division One coach, a very coveted position that pretty much every uh-huh. basketball coach wants. You coached at Stetson University for a couple years in the 1990s, a Florida-based university. Uh, tell right. us about a couple of those years at Stetson, Coach. And, and looking back, is there anything you would have done differently in your two years or so at Stetson? You know, there, there certainly is. I, I had... Since the time I started, my sights were set on becoming a, a, a head Division One coach once I 
landed in the in the ranks of, of college basketball. And every move I made, and that's why we made uh, a couple extra moves probably, was to put myself in a situation where I could do that and became a head coach. We, I'll tell you what, if, if, if there's one thing that, that I really wish I would have understood then that I, that I do now is I, I tried to change people and I tried to change situations that I thought would be more favorable to us being successful. And it, it's just a small little place in the land, Florida, and I had a heck of a time getting house players admitted. In fact, it was almost like uh, impossible. And I tell you, I fought it. I really did, and I, I felt like that was working really, really hard. I had a great staff of players that were just busting and just giving us all they could and just didn't feel like I was on the same page with the people I worked for. And knowing that uh, if you're in the city of the United States, every team's going to have a boatload of junior college players. It's just the way it's done. Yeah. It didn't, so we had a tremendous disadvantage. Um, I loved my time there. I didn't like the way that people simply made my time, and I did learn a ton. Yeah, well, like I said, it seemed like it was a learning experience, and you got a Division One job. Um Coach, I want to ask you, you know, I, we could talk so much about the March Madness tournament, but I want to talk more about your life story today. But I do have one NCAA tournament question, if that's okay with you. And, you know, there's sure. big debate about the RPI versus the NET, but let me ask you a slightly different kind of question. Okay, take University of Oregon this year. They had a pretty average year, and they were able to sneak into the NCAA tournament because they won the Pac-12 tournament uh, a couple right. of days ago. Do you like this system of a conference tournament winner in many conferences being able to automatically get into the tournament? Or do you think it just do you think it just creates too many disparities? What's your take on, on that automatic seed that many conference winners get? I like it because if if you're at University of North Dakota or Stetson or Miami or Ohio, um, which which is three places I work way you get in the big dance is through winning that tournament. So without that tournament, there is no way that those schools have a chance to, to dance. And so from that standpoint, just kind of taking care of the little guy, because I was, I was the, the little guy, and uh, I, I think it's just, you know, it's amazing. I was down to Missouri on the country street, which is just a tremendous event, very well attended. And, and you know, the, the, the programs, the coaches, the players, that play for those schools in the Missouri Valley Conference. They're, all they think about is arch madness. They're thinking about their season, but they know that their only ticket to the dance is to win that tournament. So the tournament becomes a big thing. I understand, though, in the Pac-10 and in the Big 12 and in the Big 10 and SEC and whatnot, it's almost like they, it's a formality. They just have to fight because, you know what, six, seven, and eight of those schools are getting in the tournament anyway. And so I guess for the, you know, for the upper level schools, it's, it's not that big of an attraction. It's really not that big of a deal. For the smaller schools, the Ivy Leagues, the, you know, the, the, the smaller conferences, you better believe it is a huge, huge deal. And uh, uh, for, that, for that reason, I hope they keep it the way it is. Well, you know so much more about basketball than I do, Randy. I, it just strikes me. I don't mind a lot of the smaller schools getting in at all. It just strikes me every so often you have a mediocre or less than mediocre team in a major conference that sneaks in and perhaps Oregon's an example of that this year, but I really appreciate your feedback, coach. Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah. Coach, this, I know this is a tough subject for you, but I want to ask you about, about it. And I, if it's too hard for you to talk about, I completely understand. Um, as you address in your book, you and your ex 
wife and family experienced absolutely unthinkable tragedy and losing two of your children to, to a disease. Uh, Coach, if it's not too hard for you today, can you share with us a little bit about this disease? And I, I may not be able to pronounce it correctly. Familial, paroxymal, I think it's rhabdomolosis. Can, can you share with us about yeah. it? And has there been any more breakthroughs in, in treating and combating it in recent years? I got asked that question this morning, to be honest with you, by somebody just totally unrelated to just visiting about some things. I have it probably, I mean, it's been a good 15 years probably since I uh, even contacted Dr. Matthews at the University of Iowa Hospital, Uh just in terms of any progress, I guess just because there's, you know, I mean, it would be nice to know, but I really don't need to know type of thing. it, it, it was such a rare thing that it got misdiagnosed in Ohio. Uh, the Hamilton County, um, uh, they, they just totally just, uh, they, they just didn't know what it was. And so they, they gave it a, some kind of a, a different diagnosis. But it's a form of rhabdomyolysis, which, which in, a, in a very rudimentary way of explaining it, it's just a, there becomes a, a breakdown in, in, in muscles, uh, a breakdown in, and then later attack some of the you know the, the major um, organs in our body. Um, it is a very rapidly. Um, uh, it, it it just it, it, what, here's what here's the thing about it that I never understood. Yeah. and I never will until I get the answer. Is it happens so fast in in either situation? Do we have a chance to save our own kids? You know, it isn't like, hell, you got to get them, you know, to the hospital and you got some time and the doctors have time to, I mean, and, and, and I mean, one of the most difficult things I've ever heard in my life is a doctor say, hey, I'll be quite honest with you, we don't know really a lot about it and we're not really sure how to, and he didn't finish the sentence, man, and I did. Wow. I couldn't, I just came unhinged. I said, you tell me we're not in the right place, we're at a hospital, right, to save this kid and. And for them to admit that was was very honest of them, uh, but that's not what you need to hear when you're a parent. And it, so, and in both cases, it, it happened really fast, and they were just in tough shape by the time we got them where they needed to get the care. Yeah, such such horrible tragedies you and your family went through, uh, Randy. And I, I do appreciate you sharing a little bit about that disease because I, I yeah, you know, sure. I, I I think that that can help. Even if one listener learns more about it, perhaps it could it could help somebody. So I, I appreciate you yeah. sharing that. So, Coach, sure. I want to give you an analogy, a yeah. little change of subject here. And you think uh-huh. about big names in show business like Meryl Streep, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. List goes on. But there's many actors out there really kind of struggling. They they live pretty modest lives and and then you take college basketball. You have the big names, you know, the John Woodens, the Lou Olsons, the Coach K's. But of course, there's many college basketball assistants and coaches kind of living very tenuous, challenging lives. Um, just is that analogy relatable at all? Kind of like actors and movie stars to college coaching in any way? I, I think it sure can be, especially the upper echelon of, of coaches, you know, the guys that you that are familiar faces, um, you know, household names that you see every night on ESPN. It's right. Like, seems like, it seems like, doesn't it seem like Duke plays 120 games a year? Right. I swear, they are on almost every night. But yeah, I, I think that's probably uh, true for a real small 
faction of college basketball, and the rest of us are just grinding away and trying to do as good a job as we can. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably probably pretty fair. Yeah, I got that in your book that if you love college sports, I mean, coaching is just such an amazing career and profession. But boy, it 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 just struck me is so tenuous and, and challenging, you know, the relocations. Yeah. And you know more about this than I do, but I, I'm just reading your book, and I was just thinking about the other day that, you know, back to the acting analogy, that you got some amazing community theater-type actors and actresses. We have a big theater community in Seattle that don't make big livings, but they're very good at what they do. I don't know, and you find yeah. college assistant coaches kind of similar there. I don't know. I just I, I appreciate your, your insights. That, that, that's, that is really a good observation. I'm a music fan and I will go anywhere to see it to see a good band and you know I have seen hundreds and hundreds of these bands uh, pile out of a van that they've driven from Wichita Kansas sure. to Des Moines Iowa to pull amps out and guitars and the whole deal and set up and play their hearts out unplug everything put it back in the van and I've talked so I talk to these guys all the time I I there's a real parallel between someone trying to make it in any field, but let's just use college basketball. Somebody wants to be a coach, but as an assistant, maybe at Stony Brook or North Coast State or Montana Tech, and who knows if they'll ever get there. And I, I, I tell you guys, I have so much respect for you guys. I mean, let's say there were 30 other people there. They're pushing the merchandise because they can't sell music anymore, so they're trying to sell T-shirts to get enough gas to get to um, Spokane, Illinois for the next night. Right. And I just appreciate the heck out of that. And I think we're all pushing to get to the next spot. But it's tough because, you know what, there's only so much airtime. There's only so many um, people that can be on, on certain shows or up on the big stages. And just like coaches, there's only so many big-time programs, and uh, we're all kind of fighting for those. Right. Well, I like, I like you throwing in that music analogy as well. It, it, I think it gives us all some more insights. This is Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff with Randy Brown, author, former college coach, and now a basketball consultant. So, Randy, I'm not going to go into every detail here, but in your book you describe it more. But I just have a general question about about pornography addiction issues. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's any sure. more prevalent in the sports field than the other fields? I, I was just kind of curious if, if you have any thoughts on that. No, I don't think so. I, I, I do think, though, that someone may think that or may get that inclination because it, anytime you're in the public eye yeah. um, and something happens that's negative, it's going to make the headlines. It's going to make news. Um, I, well, I'll tell you this. In, in all the uh, recovery I've done, um, in facilities that I've been in, of all the people I've come in contact with in terms of, you know, even like treatment specialists, doctors, um, and, and certainly patients, people just like me, I, I, it was rarely that there was ever a sports figure. It's just your normal, um, you, you know, your you normal person who's working whatever kind of kind of life. I, I think the thing that's really, really scary about it, I don't think, I know, yeah. is that it can be done... Um, it, it can be done in hiding. And so, um, you know, it's, it's amazing when they put out stats on pornography about how many people access pornography. You know what? I don't know how they get that because that is one of the things about it that is so um, addicting is that you just feel like you're the only one that knows what's going on and, and, and you can do it if you're looking to know yourself, please yourself, um, whatever is going on in your life. Um, so much of that is done, you know, 
with with the door closed. I don't know how they even come up with statistics, but um, the, the, the three A's, when I speak about it, Paul, I talk about it's available, um, certainly, right, these days, unbelievable. Right. It's it's acceptable. Now, that's a whole lot different than what I you know, the the, the Cleavers, you know, and Gilligan's Island when I got home from school. Right. Okay. Those are good points. Uh, and, and you know what? From Billy to TV to whatever, our world is a different place in terms of accepting even soft pornography, which you can turn on anything. But the third one is the absolute cinch. Um, and what makes it so, so dangerous is it can be anonymous. And you can go online, be anybody you want to be, ask the other person to be anybody that you want them to be. You can access all media types. Um, it, it's it's all there. And those three A's together, to me, are like gasoline and fire. Oh, sure. And, man, it is. Oh, I, get, I, I really get scared for people that I know personally. I get scared for our society, and I get scared for kids that are growing up and what it's going to be like on the road. So it's 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 much too you know the three A's are just just horrible and it takes an unbelievable person who knows that that's there and knows that that's pleasurable and tempting to not do it. I give people people that are listening say, well, I don't access pornography. I've seen it, but I don't access it. It doesn't run my life. I don't see it before and am watching it. Man, I mean, congratulations to that person. I think that's awesome. Um, because when it gets a hold of you, you you've, you've got to have it just like any other drug or any other obsession. Right, it's a tough place to be. Well, pornography is an addiction issue that probably could could get some more attention. But I, I'm certainly no expert on addictions. But um, yeah, you had some good insights. So, Randy, you did two years in the federal penitentiary in North Carolina, and I, I work as an attorney. I've had I've had a few clients who've done some time, and I've talked to some people about mm-hmm. prison life, and they're always interesting conversations. And did you feel, Randy, when you were in prison, being a former college basketball coach, did that make prison any easier in terms of interacting with guards and inmates and administrators? Did you feel you had any edge anyway, being a, a former college coach? Well, I made my mind up before I went in that I was not going to let anybody know that. I thought that could only be Interesting. a deterrent because – I, I think that there is a big deal made be, behind the behind the razor wire of anybody that got any preferential treatment is seen as special in any way, shape, or form, and I wanted to avoid that completely. And without going into any details, other than just quickly saying this, I received one of the great blessings in my life when the federal judge in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, issued me um, a recommendation to go to Butner, North Carolina, because they had one of the two, only two, federal uh, sex offender treatment programs in the country within the Bureau of Prisons, and I got sent to one of them. Um, I immediately entered the program when I got there, and you know, it, it's like the last two years. If you're doing 15 years, your last two years, you would take that program and then you know work your way into society. I just got plopped in there. So within an 800 inmate compound, that is not a good place. It's a scary place. It's a lot of bad stuff going on. It's a hopeless place. Sure. I am within, I'm, I'm within that, but, it, but within, again, a building to where we slept or we did our activities. But I had half of the day I was in treatment with, with 
world-class doctors and treatment specialists. It's like I was in a dream. I could, how could I be this fortunate? So, Paul, I got a chance, instead of just laying there and being afraid for myself 24-7, probably getting negative and, and really setting myself up when I got out, I got to work on myself. Now, you tell me how that happens. It's just an amazing blessing in my life, and it changed my life. What those doctors um, allowed me to do once I bought into it and said, you got me, because um, it was tough. It was as tough as anything I've ever done in my life. Then that's when change started to happen. I started to really understand. Randy, we just got a couple minutes left, and I want to get a couple more questions in uh, to you. Sure. Paul Schneiderman, a host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with uh, Coach Randy Brown. Uh, you know, you have, in your book, you have some very interesting quotes from some famous figures. And you quote Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl is a late Holocaust survivor who wrote about his experience as a survivor in Man's Search for Meaning, a famous book. Um, tell us for a minute what effect Mr. Frankl's teachings have had on you and in your prison experience. I read, I was so moved when I read that book. And I was, I was just blown away by the conditions that he faced, but yet the hope that he conjured up somehow. And I remember reading that, and I read it over and over, Paul, because I was getting ready to go to a place in my mind that was worth that. And and I knew, I mean, I, I see myself as a pretty strong person, but not that strong. Sure. And, and I just tried to picture being that hungry, being that cold, just barely having a stitch of clothes on, and it's sub-zero. I don't know how you could even live. And... I, that meant everything to me, that, 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 a, that a person's will and what's really inside you is, is the thing that's going to make a difference. Really moved me. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer. And I, and I, and I think, just kind of shooting from the hip, that Frankel's book could probably help a lot of people dealing with complicated, challenging oh, situations. Oh, absolutely. It can help anybody, really. I mean, if, if you read it to really learn and not to say, well, that's just a story about some guy that's in a... You know how we do that, but no, 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 no. If you personalize it, I mean, it, you know, it got me to my knees. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, it actually I... gave me gave me a lot of confidence to say, you know what, suck it up. You know, I, I, hey, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay for what I did. Um, I, I, I owe, you know, I, I, I just owe this time, and I'm gonna go do it. And it's not woe is me. And then I thought about the book, and I thought about the book all, all the time. Coach, I didn't have a chance. Powerful. I didn't have, we have less than a minute left. I didn't have a chance to get into your uh, mentoring program that much, your coaching program, but share us what's in the future for uh, Coach Randy Brown. we got like 30 seconds left. Well, I'm going to continue to work with coaches. Listen, when I got done in, in um, um, 2006, Paul, I knew that I had so much, uh, so much information, so much knowledge, so much expertise that I could either just put it in the closet or I could open myself to the coaching profession. I've done that with young coaches and coaches of all ages. And so I think my mission right now is to get back to the game that's been so wonderful to me and allowed me to become a college coach and enjoy the game so much. Coach, thank you so much for coming on Sports and Stuff. That's you and I stay in touch, okay? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Paul. You take care.